Hello and welcome to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Pizzell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we return to you this week with number 59 on AFI's top 100 list of films with something called Nashville. The something called Nashville is right. <laughs> Nashville. Ethan, you sound particularly excited this week, and I think it's because you are just <laughs> raring to tackle that plot synopsis. Uh, y- yes. It's my plot synopsis is very detailed, very succinct, very clear, just like this movie. Stop teasing us with it and let mm-hmm. us know. All right, here we go. Nashville is the story of an eccentric ensemble cast of musicians, wannabes, business people, and politicians in Nashville in 1975. Main characters include the unseen but omnipresent Hal Philip Walker, a populist candidate for president whose campaign is orchestrating a rally, Opal, a BBC documentarian, Barbara Jean, a popular singer who suffers from nervous breakdowns, Haven Hamilton, a pompous and self-righteous singer, and rock group Bill, Mary, and Tom, who are navigating Tom's attempt to leave the band. Over the course of several days, many characters are brought together through the upcoming rally. Tom of Bill, Mary, and Tom womanizes. Bill and Mary's marriage falls apart. Barbara Jean attempts to recover from her breakdown while her crude husband tries to control her and keep her her career together. Winifred runs from her husband and attempts to become a country western singer. Suleen Gay, who cannot sing, also chases fame but finds herself in a job stripping. Uh, Linnea, a white gospel singer, cheats on her husband with Tom. Her husband attempts to assault Suleen. Wade, a cook, starts a fight over a black singer he thinks is too white and attempts to convince Suleen that she can't sing. Doesn't work. The bumbling opal bounces around and conducts interviews with many of the characters. All of this comes to a head at the end at a musical rally for Hal Philip Walker and Barbara Jean and Haven are shot. Winifred gets her big break and her chance to sing as the film ends, and that is all I have to say about that. I think we should drill down a little bit into the ending of the film, because I think it can be probably the most confusing part of this already confusing film. Yeah. So the character Kenny, who is reportedly a musician, carries around a fiddle, though it's in a case the entire time we never see it, is boarding with Martha, a.k.a. L.A. Joan, played by Shelley Duvall's uncle's house. He's renting a room. Aunt Esther is dying in the hospital. Martha never gets around to seeing her. But Kenny's actually at the funeral. So Kenny seems like a nice guy. And yet, at the end, he's the one that shoots Barbara Jean. (laughs) Um, And there, I mean, there are countless other characters that we can also talk about here there's the the little the military guy who his mom saved barbara jean from a fire and he just kind of shows up who else is there there are the deaf children of uh linnea yeah um there's uh ian malcolm who rides around on a three-wheel motorcycle and does magic tricks uh there's all the different i'm surprised you don't uh focus more on Mr. Motorcycle Man, seeing as how it's Jeff Goldblum. Right. I, You know, I love Jeff Goldblum, but 
I don't really get why he's in this movie other than to tie... I, I don't really get why there are most of the characters in this movie but he does jeff goldblum does kind of tie everything together i guess he is part of like scene transitions but he never says anything he just does some magic uh who else are we missing there are tons of other people all the different politicians that work for hal philip walker uh that are trying to fleece some of these people who else who else are we missing well there's a ton but there are 24 main characters or part of this ensemble (laughs) cast you mentioned there are 24 of them so quite a few but ethan why do you think kenny shoots barbara jean i have honestly i it's hard to say i i think i guess kenny in some way is supposed to be a greek chorus like figure and i think he comes and sees that the that Nashville is not good and it just becomes more and more fed up and finally shoots the symbol of everything that is wrong in Nashville, which is, you know, Barbara Jean, who's barely holding it together, exploited by her husband, you know, is this sort of blank canvas for people to project their feelings about country music, Nashville, America, what have you onto her. I think that makes that character way too much of a hero in this situation. Yeah, I mean, certainly I guess he's not a hero at all. He murders a woman, so. (laughs) Well, we don't actually know that. We get indications that that might be the case. Someone says, wow, she's losing a lot of blood as they're pulling her away. But we really don't know necessarily what's going on. True, it is ambiguous. I actually looked this up because I was curious. I really didn't understand the Kenny part. I don't think there was anything in the phone call with his mother that would indicate that he was plotting to do an assassination. But one theory that I came across was that Kenny was waiting for the presidential nominee to take the stage. And for whatever reason, maybe like what you indicated, transfers his target to Barbara Jean as she is seen to be connected with it, which would kind of create that irony or tragic situation because her husband is saying she's not going to appear on stage with this guy's banner behind her. She's not going to do that. It can't be any pamphlets being passed around. But, of course, he goes through with it because her fan base is kind of on the rocks based on her illness, which I would disagree with you in your synopsis saying these aren't nervous breakdowns. I think she might be having mental episodes i think she might be mentally ill yeah she's not right right she has that uh that i guess that episode where she's performing and just stops singing the upcoming song and just starts talking about roast beef her grandparents the storm that may or may not roll into town whatever's on her mind and doesn't seem to understand that you it's time to perform which really speaks to your point about kenny lashing out at the corruption of nashville because we sort of have barbara jean pining for simpler times her grandparents and how she made 50 cents off of singing this record and it was a much 
easier sort of A to B situation. Now she has to do all this publicity stuff. She's got to go places. It's clearly having an effect on her health. At least that's what we're given to, to believe, right? It could be something else entirely, but who knows? Yeah, and I mean, that's the sort of most cogent through line that I can find in this film. I mean, I think that it intentionally doesn't give us much in the way of real plot, and I think it's purposefully disconnected like this. Uh, to what end, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but Yeah, so seeing the difficulty you're having in nailing down the plot of this film is kind of the issue I had with selecting a pivotal scene. Because yeah. I would argue there is no pivotal scene in this film because each scene is supposed to be connected, just like all the characters are connected, this interconnectedness what we'll turn to in our three questions called mosaic, right? A mosaic film. So Mm -hmm. I just picked a scene in the film that I thought, okay, I've given up the notions of traditional plot (laughs) and I'm thinking, what is this film? So this scene comes about 40 minutes in it's Linnea setting the table with her two deaf children while Delbert, her husband is apologizing for having triplet, the political campaign advisor or coordinator over for dinner and they're listening to their son's story. What is not heard in the audio here is that Delbert doesn't seem to know sign language where Linnea certainly does. And so you kind of get an indication that something's maybe not quite right about their relationship. And I'm reading into this very deeply because I couldn't understand her affair with Tom for the longest time. And so I think that's my way to understand it is that there's something about the nature of their family life where Delbert's maybe not incredibly involved. You never see him really talking to the children, certainly not with sign language in a way that's going to be more communicative to them. And so I sort of take this as my evidence in that case. Yeah. So let's give it a listen. I'm going to go in I'm sorry, I sprang his dinner on you. I I asked the man if he wanted to come over to dinner and... And then he said, "Yeah." One boy poked me out of the green. What were you just out there all by yourself? Oh, wasn't it hot? I thought I was going to burn up. That was terrible. We just got in the car and I turned on the air conditioner. And then, short there, go in the water. I said, "Okay." What are you telling Jimmy? Talk about swimming class. He's telling me about swimming class. Oh. What'd you do? You swam today? Did you learn anything? Huh? Well, let him tell it. Well. And then, the short there. Yeah, I think. Yeah, all born. Along with the town, the guy was born. And the short there. You touch the bottom. And I keep going. Walk on the bottom. And then, I come out. Then I get two cars. Go bees and and pat the cat. <laughs> How about that? They call you go they call, call you goldfish? Goldfish. Okay, so I think this perfectly illustrates what this film is about. A bunch of seemingly random scenes built together in an interconnected mosaic, which is apparently what the director wanted. Ethan, I want to give you my thesis to this film. Okay, bring it out. So it's something we've kind of anticipated a bit with our conversation already, 
But I think this film is about the interconnectedness of people rather than people themselves. I think it's a very important notion for this. Imagine shaking a jar of marbles and the marbles that strike one another best typify this film. The reason behind these careening actions are often not explicated, however. There are things that we're just supposed to take for granted, like Scott Glenn, the guy who plays Stick in the Netflix Daredevil. He's the PFC, the soldier who's Mm -hmm. kind of lingering around Barbara Jean. He's just there, and he's just taking it as, I need to see Barbara Jean, and I guess I need to see her a bunch. I really didn't understand that. And the fact that Tom, Keith Carradine's character, is just Mm -hmm. sexually irresistible, I guess. (laughs) Where he just fills a need for all kinds of women in a way that, I don't know, that really attracted to. Like I mentioned earlier, I really didn't understand Linnea's affair necessarily. I'm sort of making justifications for it now, but I, I didn't get it then. And so the film is just full of these things where you really just can't... You just have to take something for granted. You take something on faith of the film that there's a whole history wrought behind this. Like, why is Winifred's husband so adamant that she's not going to become a star and is always chasing her when, in fact, we find out she does have talent, she sings at the end, gets the crowd back from a attempted or fulfilled assassination to get them to sing along, <laughs> right? Yeah, and... So the way I saw this is, I mean, so I think you're thinking a, a lot about like the genre of, or, like, or or the lack thereof of this film, right? Or or the the construction of it, the what's the word I want? Organization of this film to to say something, and I focused a little more on this idea of what it exposes about Nashville. And maybe through that America, because it uses all of these very politically charged things, right? I mean, there's literally a politician, um, and country western music has a very patriotic, uh, what do you call it? You know, sort of zeal uh, about America. And so I see this as a film that kind of exposes the seedy underbelly of show business, of politics, and really of the American dream because everybody in this film runs around and they all want to get famous and everybody's having a pretty bad time of it. Not really very many people are really succeeding here. Um, and and everybody And all these characters, there's so many characters that are running from something and moving away from something. So I think that like this is trying to maybe point out that we're all running from something in America, right? Uh, or running towards something, which I guess is the same. Um, and the reality of these things are are not what we idolize, right? The the country western music characters that are successful are are assholes. Um, and so I think it's a it's maybe a trying to undermine you know the idea of the American dream. This is right on the cusp of the bicentennial. Um, and I and I think it wants to say that like, uh, uh, you know, America's not really the, you know, land of opportunity. It's it's the land of like failure and sad marriages, and you know, the American dream doesn't exist. So that that's really what I see this film saying. I can see your point, and I think I can merge both of ours together yeah. with. 
the first couple of scenes. So what I think about this interconnectedness, we have all these paired scenes in the film. So you've got Keith Carradine's character, Tom, singing a song, I'm Easy, while mm-hmm. looking at women in the audience, specifically Linnea, who he's trying to make his most recent conquest, his next conquest. But Mary, which is Bill's wife, is looking at him as well because she's had an affair on her husband with Tom. And then Opal mm-hmm. is also looking at Opal. Tom. So it's all these women in the audience vying for something about him, emotionally, sexually, what have you. That's compared directly to Suleen's strip song in which she mm-hmm. doesn't know that she's being required to strip. <laughs> and then it has to right. be bargained. Oh, well, you'll sing at the Parthenon tomorrow with... Barbara Jean, which, by the way, I think it's interesting. You have Delbert telling Triplett, hey, did you know this Parthenon was built out of lumber and plaster of Paris, right? So it's a poor facsimile to mm-hmm. the actual Parthenon. So I think we get to that CD, you know, tear off the veneer type thing that you're getting at with your thesis. But the scene yeah. I really want to turn us to is one of the first ones. We have Haven Hamilton which has a founding father's name, which should be important, Mm -hmm. singing this folksy song about America doing everything right, or we must be doing something right to last 200 years, which it's like little flash in the pan country, 200 years, what, really? Right. (laughs) Right, 200 years is nothing. It's very static. Anything that goes wrong, he calls someone out, calls everything to a halt, has them try over again and again. He's being a perfectionist. And that's directly compared to Linnea singing with the black choir and how that's very free form and improvisational. And so I think you were pointing to, with these scenes, the seedy underbelly of Nashville, the way in which America is kind of glossing over these things or, or making exceptional these ideas that are actually pretty terrible. And that's also being shown by the direct comparison of scene to scene basis. Yeah. Well, and, and even in that scene, Linnea, right. Singing with the black choir, there's the, um, the underlying conversation with Opal that is very racist. Um, and, and kind of points out that Linnea in a lot of ways is, is exploiting, you know, African American uh, gospel music. She's the only white person, um, and gets to like dance around or whatever. And she's the named person, not any of the unnamed choir members. You know what I mean? So even in that, like even the sort of the, within each contrast, there are, there are all these layers of like not goodness. <laughs> you know, you might be right, but I definitely want to talk about Opal for a second. So. Oh Opal works for who again? The the BBC. Which stands for what? The British Broadcasting Corporation. No, no, no. She says the British Broadcasting Company. Oh, she does. Which, in an interview with the actress, who is actually Charlie Chaplin's daughter. She oh, really? Sa- yeah, absolutely. She says... That is supposed to indicate that she is not working for the BBC that we actually know. She is making it up. Well, and and it, it, that seems to make a lot of sense because she, th- throughout, is, I mean, do, doesn't do her job well. She's rude. She's a nutbag. She's walking around the cars, talking in the in the junkyard, talking about how the cars, the buses, are, yeah, 
Yeah, oh, the, the cars, the yeah, the, the junkyard are, and the bus scene. The cars are the the rust on the cars is the blood of children that she that don't get enough to eat, and she feels the cars calling to her. And then the buses are how many children, black and white, each night go to bed afraid of the bus? What the the with yellow, yellow nightmares? I, yeah. Yeah, and and the like when she's talking to Linnea, you know, she's like, "Oh, do your children want to be singers like their mom?" And she's like, "Well, my children are deaf." And she's like, "No, that's horrible." And Linnea's like, "No, no, 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 it's not. It's actually not a bad thing." And and uh, Opal's like, "No, that's ter- that is just the worst thing." On, I mean, she's so she's you. It's it, you know, she's bumbling. She's she fucks Tom for some reason. Uh, he seduces her she's yeah so i love this idea that she's some sort of caricature of what we think that british people are but she's not quite right you know she's not she works for the british broadcasting company (laughs) which i think also shows that she's running to and from something also so it might be beyond merely an american condition but she's so intolerant and horrible you talked about her talking about the black choir she says if you just strip them down naked and watch them dance, you could see them in Africa. And it's passed down through the genes. She's saying all this really bad pseudoscience. Right. And then Norman is making a, I would say, pretty decent pass at her in terms of it's not as bad as something that Tom would do. It's not something what Delbert does to Suleen where he tells her he wants to kiss her all over her body and all this stuff. Right. And she says... Uh, what's your name again, Norman? I I I don't talk to the servants, and it's like oh my gosh. So Opal is incorrigible. Well, and she interviews um, what's his name, the son of Haven Hamilton, and she she gets him to sing his song, the only song he's ever written, and he's singing it to her. And then she sees a movie star, and she's like, oh, I I, I I've got to go see him. Huh? And in the middle of this guy's like, I and maybe he's trying to seduce her too. Who knows? What's well, I think she's trying to seduce him originally, and then she sees her main target, which is to break into this broadcasting business, sees a movie star, oh, I better go interview him. There's also like that right. random scene where an actual actress from our world just walks into the film and says hi to Haven Hamilton right. and then leaves. I forget the name, but I looked it up and I was like, oh, that actually is her as herself. What a weird thing. Yeah, and that that happens at, at at least one other time too. The movie star that Opal goes after is a real is a real movie star. I don't know. Oh, okay. Who it was. Um, yeah. So it's just this is just a, a bizarre like it's almost an anti film. This film. It's a strange thing, but I think we could come to grips with it better in our three questions. Yeah, I think we can. Okay, Ethan, do we care about this film? Uh, you know, this is a hard one to answer. And I guess I would say sort of if we're if you're interested in country western music and Tennessee and the bicentennial. So sort of. It's a lot of people's favorite film, which I found surprising cuz it's certainly not my cup of tea. I think no. all of the country songs sort of great on me just by my musical tastes and some of them are just bad i think some of them are meant to be bad and i'm i'm with you i am not a country western fan but there are a few that i'm like this 
we've got there are five minutes of this song that isn't or it's just a song that they made up for the movie and it's not good and it's made up by the actors that portray the musicians so they all (laughs) are not you know established musicians or you know music writers so it's not the best in a lot of cases but you know I, i guess that means something to them and to the film in that way but I will say a lot of people also consider this as the director Robert Altman's masterpiece. I I think I can understand that to a point, that, and I think we'll hit that in some of these other questions here. Yeah, so I think we have to care about it because a lot of people are demonstrating that they care about it, and they care about it a great deal, perhaps the most. If they say it's their favorite film, who am I to say that they're wrong? But... For me, I, I it's it's a long film. It's almost three hours. It's this strange mosaic in which nothing happens, and I'm a very plot-driven person. It's just my background. Me too. So uh, it's hard personally, but I could see maybe culturally why people care about this. Uh, you know, I also don't know the age range of the people who are saying it's their favorite film, but it could be very much of a time. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think you have to. I think there's a very specific kind of person who's going to really dig this film. Um, and I think some of it has to do perhaps with age. Uh, certainly I can't see trying, listen, trying to teach this film to a classroom of 18 year olds. I wish anybody good luck. (laughs) Well, let's ask our second question then. Yeah, let's do it. What do we owe to this film? Well, I, I think that actually this is maybe why this film why I might be able to answer the first question is yes, I care about this film. I think that this film very clearly sets up something like Pulp Fiction, which I think is very important um, and care very much about. I also see how this film sets up Christopher Guest style films like uh, the Spinal Tap movie, Best in mm. Show, all of these sort of ensemble cast satire ridiculous setup sort of thing you know what i mean so i think that it it sets these and and it's and it seems like a very postmodern movie so i think there are a lot of things because it does none of this plot the normal sort of plot things that we would expect um you know i think that it it is far-reaching in its uh in its legacy that's an interesting point ethan i hadn't seen it quite like that but i do agree you know, Pulp Fiction, other film on the list. Linnea also mentions Easy Rider at one point in the film. I know, yeah. But I think there might also be a larger reason to what we owe to this, and this is kind of maybe a bit darker of a note, certainly prescient and important for 2018. But in addition to like the mosaic film, which I think sort of what you're touching on, that post-modernity about it, we've also got these assassinations for attention. After John Lennon was shot... They call Robert Altman and say, do you feel responsible for this? And he says, no, why should I? Oh, shit. And he says, don't you feel responsible for not heeding my warning? So part of his director (laughs) intent was to point out the fact that, like, there are these political assassins that do this thing for do these things for attention. We also have like the Hinckley Reagan assassination attempt also predicated Mm. upon like a media thing with Jodie Foster. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have this idea that is all too common today in fact just this morning i was talking to students about school shootings and gun violence and the ways in which we kind of 
not glorified, but certainly the names of these shooters are out there because people want to see them as, oh, this is the other. What did they do? Why are they different? How did this happen? As opposed to focusing on systemic reasons or the victims. Mm -hmm. We kind of, in a way, are paying a lot of attention to the killers instead of what we should be paying attention to, what reasons to stop this, ways to stop this. And by doing so, it might also discourage people from taking these kinds of actions. So yeah. I think we have to talk about that with this film. And I think the fact that it actually was brought out as a result of Lennon's death, I think is a really interesting way to talk about it in 2018. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a whole political angle with populism uh, and using uh, star power to get political uh, capital, you know that, and I think that maybe we could go down a whole a whole long road there um, with all this sort of Hal Philip Walker stuff. But let me tell you, Matt, it would be nice to just not think about Donald Trump for maybe an hour. <laughs> so I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> right, I agree, but I think your point is well taken. That there is something about social currency or political currency being equated with the idea of like, let's say, who's a star today? Selena Gomez, I don't know, I'm just picking names, right? I don't, I don't know. Really popular singers that are throwing their capital or currency or weight behind political candidates. You can think about inauguration concerts or primary concerts yeah. and using that as a way to get people to believe what you believe politically, which should be you know, a fallacious reasoning, but it shouldn't be possible, right? It shouldn't be possible to say like, well, I like Selena Gomez's music, therefore I like Barack Obama's, you know, political agenda, which, right? I, you know, just as a point of fact, I don't actually know if Selena Gomez supports Obama <laughs> or did support Obama. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but by way of, it, of example, I think. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that's, we, we can see that all over the place, you know, people and, and musicians coming out and saying, don't use my music or allowing politicians to use their music at rallies and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so I guess it is uh, um, predictive uh, in that sense as well. So, yeah. So I think that naturally takes us to our third question, Ethan. And does yes. this film hold up? Well, let me say this. Like I said earlier, if I had to try to teach this to a classroom of apathetic 18-year-olds, I think that it would tank. Uh, did I enjoy watching this film? No. Does it look like a daydream out of the 1970s? Yes. Does it hold up overall? I guess, kind of. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I will say that I was getting heavy Clockwork Orange vibes from it. With the I can see that. Extravagance of something like Jeff Goldblum's motorcycle. And I don't know, some of the ways in which we're asked to believe certain things at face value without really having a foundation to build upon. I think it's an extreme comparison, but I think it did kind of harken back to that a little bit. But I would say where Clockwork Orange definitely holds up, maybe because of slash despite the extravagance of setting, you know, we talked about how 
that film is hard to place historically in terms of mm-hmm. the own film and anything of that era just feels so wild. It could have been, you know, 1970, whatever, or 2351. Like you could, you could convince me either way. Yeah. I think this is a little more dated in that regard, but I do think it holds up as a film to be watched. I do think, however, the lack of plot and the lack of concise plot for a 2018 viewer would be a very big ask for them. Yeah, and I and I think, you know, th- I think this does a similar thing to what Pulp Fiction does, but I think Pulp Fiction does it in a more palatable way for modern audiences and you know of 2018 audiences i think that this is is just it's tougher to watch unfortunately well ethan speaking of films on the list our next film on the list is actually a charlie chaplin film it is called gold rush from 1925 okay i'm looking forward to that and i'm sure you're looking forward to that because those films are often pretty short Yes, let's get something short for for once in our lives. (laughs) So until then, I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. There will be spoilers. There will be spoilers. There's spoilers on the left. There's spoilers on the right. All these fellas, they really like you. I mean, you got to... Gotta take it off. No, I'm a singer. Well, listen, if you want to play the Parthenon tomorrow with Barbara Jean, you're going to have to do Bar- what you told Trout you were going to do. Jean. Barbara Jean. Finish it. Finish it, Ethan. Okay. All right. I wish I had a zipper effect. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.